0: So, you want to know what's causing the current inflationary spiral? Well, you better get out pen and paper and be prepared to write a long list of causes. Here to walk us through it, we have Mark Hamrick, the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. From the studios of Karma Productions Worldwide in Chicago, this is Lou Carlozzo's Bankadelic. bankadelic the colorful side of finance where we supply expert views riff on the news innovate and investigate actionable insights unscripted banking with a caffeine kick i'm your host lou carloso inviting you to sit back grab a cuppa kick up your feet here we go Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic, and very recently, yes, we passed the century mark, 100 episodes. We couldn't have done it without you, those of you who are veteran listeners, and those of you who have just come in for the first time, welcome aboard, and wow, what a treat today on the podcast. I've waited for a while to have this guest on and we finally have him Mark Hamrick. Mark is the Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. He operates out of the National Press Building near the White House and U.S. Treasury. Mark's an award winning business and financial journalist who joined Bankrate after leading business news for the Associated Press Broadcast in Washington for nearly 20 years. Now get this, Mark also has the rare distinction of having served as a leader for two high-profile journalism associations. He's a past president of the National Press Club, and in addition to that, he was a vocal advocate for press freedom around the world and served two terms as president of SABU, the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing. A Kansas native, Mark began his career in journalism as a high school student working in radio in his hometown of Coffeyville. And he lives in Potomac, Maryland with his wife, Jean, and a son, just like me, named Christopher. Mark, welcome to Bankadelic.
1: Oh, Lou, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for the very generous introduction. Been looking forward to this for a long time, and it's great to work with you. Thanks so
0: much. Yeah, and right back at you. You've been really helpful with some of my deadline pieces. Now, I want to start with getting people zeroed in on some terminology. Obviously, you and I understand it. Perhaps our listeners don't. The CPI, the Consumer Price Index, and why it is so important to measuring what's going on with inflation. How does it work?
1: Well, first of all, this is probably the most closely followed measure of prices at the retail level. And when we're talking about retail or consumers, really we're talking about the experience of all consumers and the prices that they may potentially have to pay or interact with in their everyday lives. And what the government does with this is to essentially sample prices across the broad spectrum. And there are many, many data points that they look at. You can imagine everything from, let's say, a box of crackers to a gallon of gasoline to some complicated measurements that have to do with capturing the cost of housing, whether it's rent or the equivalent, so to speak, of a mortgage payment that one is making. So we're really talking lately about the spikes that have occurred across the board over the past nearly two years. And Americans have been paying those prices, you know, much to their chagrin and to some degree, much to their detriment in the sense that, inflation does damage right it erodes buying power and so there are a number of different measures of inflation we have the cpi the consumer price index capturing the price situation at the retail level we have the producer price index which is the wholesale gauge capturing them before they get to the consumer we've been so familiar over these past few years with the notion of supply chain disruptions and then personal consumption expenditures is one where the federal reserve looks at yet another index of pricing and in some ways prefers to look at that. But I think as we've gotten now five interest rate hikes behind us and likely some more to come, the Fed is looking at all the data points and the outsized gains in the consumer price index. And it's quite remarkable. I even saw a presidential politics survey released that indicated that inflation ends up being, at least by one survey, the number one political issue as well, which that caught me a little unaware because I'm not sure all the surveys have captured that.
0: Yeah. And I am so glad you mentioned that. It really anticipates my next question. When we look at inflation, some people are very eager to blame it on President Biden. Other people are eager to blame it on the GOP and all of the tax cuts that were passed. Some people just think, well, prices are going up. What is the problem? Why can't we stop it? And yet, The root causes of this round of inflation appear to be much more nuanced. Maybe you can take us back to when this spiral started and identify some of the factors that met as a perfect storm and created the situation that we're in now.
1: Yeah, and I get this question a lot. And I think that fortunately, the people that I get to talk to like you and others understand that bank rate is essentially politically agnostic or neutral. And it's part of our job to try to connect the dots between what's happening in the world and individuals personal finances and to be fair and to be as accurate as we can. One thing we can start out with before I sort of get to the very complicated and diverse number of triggers that have set off this inflation is to acknowledge that we live in probably the most polarizing political times in a hundred hundred fifty years in our country going back probably to the civil war time and so there is an inclination on the parts of some individuals is to automatically try to direct blame to the other side of the team that they aren't supporting in politics and i think unfortunately people go to that option all too often and it doesn't sort of lead us to a place where anything constructive can either be discussed or achieved but to the question well, let's think back about December, January of 2020. And we had, of course, the evolution, so to speak, of the pandemic. When in that December, I can remember talking to many people, and the thought was, or it was more of a prayer or a hope, that the pandemic might somehow be just localized to China. And of course, we learned quickly otherwise over the ensuing three or four months. So that had a number of different immediate ramifications. The first was the supply chain started locking up because China was locking down. Obviously, you're getting people sick. And so those people are sidelined. And that's continuing even now and dampening the supply of labor, which is so vital for the operation of our economy and economies elsewhere. And then, of course, as we all can remember you know this is not something that happened to somebody else it happened with all of us that consumer preferences and needs shifted dramatically part of that was not being able to go out of the house very often or even if you did there were places that you literally could not go and then the need for things at home whether it was food or paper goods and the things that you couldn't buy which were part of the service economy that included travel or going to the movies going to live sports right and so what consumers consumed what they didn't consume had as dramatic a shift as any time i think in our history that wasn't associated with the natural disaster or something like world war ii That caused strains on supply chains. We can think about the shortages of meat. We can think about the paper products. And then obviously everybody who is in business, either supplying goods or services, was having not only to adapt to those shifts, but also managing their workforces where people either were able to go to the location of the business or not. And those who worked remote like I did, and I imagine you did. I did. So to quickly sort of go through some other causes, obviously the pandemic evolved over the next couple of years. Then we had the changes in consumer needs and wants. We had the continuing lockdowns in China even recently. And then, of course, the war in Ukraine. We're talking about the need for energy in Europe as well as everywhere else and the need for food across the globe, both Russia and Ukraine being major suppliers of those things. And so because Europe's been so reliant on Russian energy, you know, there's quite a dire outlook for both the price and supply of energy this winter as we get deeper into wintertime. And and um, we can also think about how we've had the spike in gasoline prices, which have since gone back down. And that seems to be the key area that's helped consumers to feel a little bit better about the price environment, simply because I think they don't like seeing that money go up in smoke. We'll see whether gasoline prices get back down to where they were a year ago, where fortunately we're now in a season where there's not as much consumption of gasoline and the blends tend to be a little less pricey. And I don't think there are too many souls out there who thought that we would have been dealing with the continuation of high inflation this late in the story. But, you know, we certainly are, unfortunately.
0: That is an incredible summary and very comprehensive. I have to say, I just learned a few things about the forces that we're talking about here, and it spurred some memories. I I remember being at the grocery store elbow to elbow with people who are fighting for that last package of toilet paper or paper towels. It almost seems like it's a dream, not something I really think about that much. So there's all sorts of really curious wrinkles that reflect everything that you just discussed, whether it's supply chains or the shortages of things that were made or the shortages of people to make them.
1: Yeah, that's a great example. And the one thing that I didn't mention, but to the first part of your question about the tie-in of elected officials, you know, we're really talking about two presidencies and two sets of members of Congress, meaning the House and Senate. And so, we had the effort really to keep the economy from truly falling off a cliff. And I can remember Treasury Secretary Mnuchin under the Trump administration was talking about the need for essentially stimulus and talking about the fear that we would get back to depression levels with unemployment. And he mentioned the number 25% for the unemployment rate, which is the estimate for unemployment during the Great Depression because the data isn't as good from back then. And so, in one way, credit elected officials who for the most part, put aside their political differences and did enact legislation aimed at keeping that worst case scenario from occurring. And they did. The unemployment rate peaked at 14.7% in April of 2020. So that's basically 10% below 25. And of course, the Federal Reserve, which (laughs) here we go again, lowering interest rates back down to record low levels where they had been after the great and during the great financial crisis. And now, of course, they're trying to exit that strategy and also shrinking the balance sheet down from the level of $9 trillion. So in summation, Your Honor, what I would say is that much the same as the great financial crisis during which the collapse of the housing market occurred, this situation had so many contributors. There is the notion that the buck stops here, meaning at the White House in the Oval Office and the president tends to be a target and to some degree an acceptor of blame. But I think it's overly simplified and ends up being erroneous to blame any single elected official for the current situation. Getting at that argument another way would be to say, you know, even authoritarian or totalitarian governments have not had elegant responses to this situation and they've lacked effectiveness. And they have essentially, you know, no elected purview, meaning, you know, they can do what they want. We're really talking about the likes of China and Russia here, just as examples. We know that those systems have not served their people well, whether it's an ineffective medical response or managing their own economies. And so the reality is that whatever. Ineffectiveness or inefficiency we've suffered in the United States, I often say long before the pandemic that inefficiency is the price of a democracy, right? And so policy mistakes can be made. They will be made. They'll be made in the future. But you also have to say of elected or unelected officials, such as those who are serving the Federal Reserve, that they did the best they could. And we're all living this in real time and trying to figure out as we go along.
0: I think that's an astute analysis, especially when we talk about the Federal Reserve. Now, that said, and we're both journalists, right? So I'm more interested in what happened and what the data says as opposed to opinion. There are critics out there, and one of the most prominent critics of Jerome Powell has been Larry Summers, who was the former Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton. And he said at a recent conference in April at Northwestern University's Kellogg School of Business, quote, Unfortunately, history is not very kind to a soft landing and then went on to say that the Fed waited far too long to act on inflation and that there's no reason to really hold out hope that the current spiral will cool to levels more what we were used to in the last decade. What do you make of that? And do you think he's being a little harsh, a little unfair, or maybe there's a grain of truth to that?
1: Well, Larry Summers has never been one to speak softly, right? (laughs) He has the right to his opinion and to enunciate it, and people turn to him for his opinion because he is such a smart fellow and was, you know, indeed thought to have been at least peripherally a potential candidate for Federal Reserve chairman as well. So there may be a piece of that playing in there. but. I think most officials who serve the central bank will admit that they got behind the curve in the sense of not raising interest rates to a nominal level earlier and perhaps should have not kept growing the balance sheet as they did. But you know, unprecedented steps and circumstances require being right. You know, if they've made a mistake, that also has huge consequences. And we can't measure per se, what contribution to inflation policymakers and fiscal authorities did, we have a pretty good idea that it did matter, right? And so this is one of the reasons why they want to get their policy rate. The other thing about Larry Summers' comment is, he's obviously, you know, making a guess about where inflation, quote unquote, ultimately ends up. But the reality is nobody really knows. And there's been plenty written about this, plenty discussed. You know, we're learning about how inflation performs during this experience in ways that we hadn't learned in the past. You know, think about the fact that the Fed does have that 2% target and that it had failed to achieve that target for years and years and years. And so, you know, it was a little overconfident that it would never have to deal or at least not in the near term, never have to deal with outsized inflation and history has a way of biting back so that's the situation where we've seen measures of inflation at the highest level since the last time we had a high level of inflation which really was the early 1980s i would like to think meaning hope and pray (laughs) that at some point we'll get back to a more normal level of inflation with our sort of everyday experience But even the Federal Reserve's own forecasts, and they update these forecasts every other meeting, their estimate for this year, 2023, is below 3% and at 2.3 in 2024. So they're still talking about inflation being above trend over the next two years. And then you get all the way to 2025, and finally they have it down to 2%. That's another way of saying they think it's going to take a long time.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that as we head off into the sunset here, because a lot of the futurists and people involved in artificial intelligence are really excited about the idea that someday this data will be in real time and that we're moving closer to it. And perhaps when that day comes, we'll be able to get pinpoint reads on jobs, on housing, on inflation, on prices, all of those things. And if anything maybe that'll make your job easier maybe it will you know
1: i mean <laughs> you know either that or it's all hands on deck all the time but to your point anything that gets us better data is great and one of the things that was quite stunning early in this crisis lou was an opportunity for us at Bankrate in that we do get something that's closer to real-time data on the job market every Thursday morning at 8.30 a.m. Eastern time in the weekly new jobless claims or new unemployment claims data. And that became incredibly important because, you know, in the early stages, we had millions of people filing those claims in a given week where the sort of nominal level of that in the past had been sort of thought to have been somewhere around 250 to 400,000. And so that's a good example of so-called high-frequency data. That we also got from the private sector from a couple of different private firms talking about employment. <laughs> Ours is a data rich site at Bankrate, going back to our years since 1976, surveying the interest rate and other rate landscape data fields. And so, you know, if there's more data out there that helps us to make better decisions, we'd love
0: that. Absolutely. And we are so fortunate to have you out there doing so much in service of readers and in service of the profession itself. You know that I'm a fan of yours, and you're making a huge difference. Mark, thank you so much for making the time today.
1: Well, right back at you, Lou. Thanks so much. It was a real pleasure, and we enjoyed it.
0: Mark Hamrick is Washington Bureau Chief and Senior Economic Analyst for Bankrate.com. He operates out of the National Press Building and is a proud alum of the University of Kansas. You can look for Mark on LinkedIn. You're listening to Lou Carlozo's Bankadelic: The Colorful Side of Finance. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at NMD Plus, based in London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas. If you like what you've heard here, be sure to check out NMD Plus's financial technology podcast, Dave and Darm Demystify, with hosts Dave Wallace and Darmesh Mystery. Bankadelic. Have you thought about how you'll gain the upper hand in your search for stellar talent? BankerHire leverages a niche industry with uncommon insight. They're committed to finding you qualified commercial and community banking, lending, compliance, HR, retail, and wealth talent. BankerHire prides itself on listening and solving problems. Their approach is 100% hands-on and heads-up, giving you what you need to make smart, actionable decisions. For more information, visit BankerHire.com. Quantic is the adaptive digital bank that offers entrepreneurs, immigrants, millennials, low income families, seniors, and others innovative banking products and services which embrace the diversity of circumstances that exist in the lives of customers while elevating their financial strength. For more information, visit QuanticBank.com. That's Q U O N. Ticbank.com. Well, Mrs. Cockney, it's been a while since we've had you in the bank. All righty! Welcome back. I, I think um, something you wanted to talk about today regarding creditworthiness?
2: That's right!
0: I don't know why I, I don't get the credit I deserve! Well, if you mean financially speaking, there are a bunch of things we need to look at and... No, I'm not
2: necessarily talking about the numbers, you know. I'm talking about why I don't get credit for cooking and slaving and doing all the things that make me deserving of a chance to get all the money I
0: need. (laughs) Mrs. Cockney, I'm afraid that once again you are very confused. I'm not confused! So, I guess what you're saying is I should just open up the vault here and hand you all the money you need. There's a problem with that. What I'd say, what's the problem? The problem is, if we just gave money to every single person who walked in this bank, we would be taking a risk that frankly nobody could afford. Do you get it?
2: Hold on now. If you are going to give me the money, then I suppose I'll
0: get it. Oh, no. Look, if I have to explain it to you one more time, I'm afraid that I'm going to begin to lose my patience a little bit. There's no
2: need for doing that.
0: Put your hands
2: in the air. This is a stick-up.
0: Not again. You have
2: me! Give me the credit all I deserve!
0: Okay, Mrs. Cockney, all those years of cooking and slaving and cleaning up after your kids, I give you a lot of credit. I think you deserve way more credit than anyone ever gave you.
2: Oh, okay. Well, that's a start. Maybe I'll come back a little later. And this time, I'll make sure the actual bullets in the gun.
0: But that's a water gun.
2: Oh no! but you know how you I'm tough these days to get what you want. Oh, boy. And now, Bigademic Presents Three Bullseyes. Bullseye.
0: Number one.
1: I think most officials who serve the central bank will admit that they got behind the curve in the sense of not raising interest rates to a nominal level earlier and perhaps should have not kept growing the balance sheet as they did. Number two policy mistakes can be made. They will be made. They'll be made in the future. But you also have to say of elected or unelected officials, such as those who are serving the Federal Reserve, that they did the best they could. And we're all living this in real time and trying to figure out as we go along. Number three. There is the notion that the buck stops here, meaning at the White House in the Oval Office and the president tends to be a target and to some degree an acceptor of blame. But I think it's overly simplified and ends up being erroneous to blame any single
0: elected official for the current situation. And now, lose views. I'm going to level with you, and something I'm about to say may make some of you listeners uncomfortable It is way too easy to blame inflation on President Biden. It's way too easy to blame inflation on the policies of the Trump administration. And for that matter, it's way too easy to think that there is a quick fix when the problem is so... ...frustratingly multifaceted. As Mark Hamrick mentioned on today's podcast, we really need to appreciate the complexity of how all this started... ...and how all of this has gone into overdrive. The war in Ukraine is just one example as it cut off wheat supplies to the Western world. Ukraine is a major supplier of wheat. It also meant boycotting Russian energy supplies and that in turn has an effect on the European economy... ...and a domino effect to us here... China has tightened up their release of products with COVID, and that led to supply chain problems, which really affected our ports and had items stockpiled for hours. People left the workplace due to the Great Resignation, and we can, of course, go on and on and on. What I think that calls us to do is really take a step back and try to appreciate how this problem is going to involve cooperation from all sorts of constituencies and nations other than our own. Those aren't popular words these days when people are so polarized in their politics and want to blame things on people on the other side. Now, I wish I had the answer to this problem, but I think Mark had a better answer, and it's one we can only hope and pray and fight for, and that's for people to be informed. When they understand the causes, they have a deeper appreciation for how things came to be, and when they themselves are empowered to do things financially that help their own situation, the effects of inflation are blunted somewhat. All of us together can really have an impact that goes behind the percentage numbers and leads us to a place where we can turn the corner. Better days are ahead. Believe it. Thanks for tuning in to Bankadelic. We hope you join us next time and check back in the weeks ahead as we build our podcast vault. Our producer in Chicago is Jenny Ellman. Thanks again to the William Mills Agency for their generous sponsorship. Thanks to Banker BankerHire. Thanks also to Quantic. I'm Lou Carloso. You can catch me on LinkedIn and at the Civil War Reenactment as Abraham Lincoln. Until next time, so long.
2: Bankadelic is a production of NMD
1: London, Chicago, and Austin, Texas.